The following podcast is brought to you by Pathways Church. For more information, visit www.pathwayschurch.us. Thanks for joining us for this message from our weekend service. Every week we're hearing stories about how God is moving in people's lives. So if you have a story to share, email us at info at pathwayschurch.us. We'd love to hear from you about how God is working in your life. Well, good morning. How is everybody today? We doing all right? Good. Hey, my name is Ben Markham, and uh, I'm a friend of Pastor Adams. We had the chance to serve together down in Orlando, Florida. Um, he came here 10 years ago. He and I had served for about three years together before that. And so when he reached out to me this fall and said, hey, Ben, do you want to come speak at Pathways Church? I was like, you know, about time you asked. Um, and I said, sure, I would love to. It'd be awesome. And so we scheduled a couple dates. And uh, maybe it's just because I, I live in Florida and I've lost touch with the Four Seasons um, I was unaware of what I was committing to when I, when I stepped off the plane um, and saw how cold it was. And it's funny because I've had an opportunity to do some traveling this fall, and it's been to northern Michigan, Wisconsin, and Minneapolis, um, all during like the cold months. And I just think, Lord, you're saying something. Um, and, but you guys, are, you guys are awesome. You're a hearty people. You're tough. Um, I, I grew up in northern Michigan. In, uh, in, in a very cold area, and, um, and when I moved down to Florida, I thought, I, you know, I'll still remain resilient to the cold, and I've learned that's not true um, at all. It's just not. So it's, been, it's a privilege being here. I had, I had a great time um, uh, just spending time last night with, with Pastor Adam. He's a deep, deeply encouraging person to me, and just uh, excited to see what God's been doing in his life, and last night I had the privilege of going to watch his daughter, Ella, uh, when uh, sectionals with girls volleyball uh, as Appleton North is advanced to the state tournament. Isn't that great? Yeah. If you see, you see her thinking, Ella, make sure you encourage her. She is phenomenal. It was really fun being there to watch her play. And so we're in a series, if, you, if you're joining us as a guest and perhaps you, you don't know about it, we're in a series right now called Not a Fan, which is about being a completely committed uh, follower of Jesus. And, uh, and so this week, we're going to continue to unpack that. Before I get there, though, I want to tell you a little story, a story I think plenty of you are familiar with, some may not know. But in 1958, do you know what the Packers' record was? It was bad. <laughs> they were 1, 10, and 1. And that was to cap off 10 years of losing seasons. They had been awful for a decade. Morale was pretty low. Then in 1959, they hired a man named Vince Lombardi. And he came in to coach them, to inspire and equip and to train them so they'd know how to better play football. But early on in his tenure there, he gets so frustrated during one practice with how his players were playing and how they were practicing that he blew his whistle and he said, men, come over here. They all came and they took a knee and then he picked up the old pigskin here. He looked at these men and he said, guys, men, this is a football. He pointed to field markers. Those are field markers. I'm your coach. You're the players. And he made it really simple for a bad team. Well, that year the team went on to be seven and five. Vince Lombardi got coach of the year, which really tells you how bad the Packers had been. <laughs> Going seven and five, they won co he, he gets coach of the year. Well, two years later, uh, in uh, 1960, they get to the Super Bowl, the championship game, 
uh, where they lose. In the fourth quarter, they gave up a lead to the Philadelphia Eagles. So in July of 1961, the team's returning to uh, training camp, and they're, they're feeling pretty good. They went from basement dwellers to playing in the championship game, and so their thinking is, when they show up to, to, to spring training or the, the summer training, their thinking is, coach is going to have some great new plays. We're going to learn even more advanced uh, uh, offensive schemes, defensive schemes. This is going to be good. And he walked into the, the locker room where all the guys have got their playbooks in front of him, and he just says, gentlemen, this is a football. Turn to page one of your playbook. And that day he walked them through blocking, tackling, running, and throwing. The four most basic components of what it means to be a football player. Well, these guys weren't losers anymore. They were winners. Why does he do that? Why does he bring them back to these things again? The reason is, is because he believed in and understood the value of fundamentals. There are basic truths that we need to be brought back to all the time if we want to be good at what we do. And as followers of Jesus Christ, there are fundamentals that we can never get away from. In this series, Not a Fan, has been a lot about that. It's been, a, it's been answering the question, why would we follow Jesus? What's compelling about that? How do we make God a priority in our day? How do we hear the voice of God? Last week, it was about personal invitation of other people, evangelism, sharing the gospel. Why do we talk about these things? Because they matter. Because fundamentals bring us back to what matters most. And when we get away from them, we lose our way. And so if you're somebody who's brand new at this and you need somebody just to explain to you what a football is in terms of being a Christian, this is a good series for you. But if you're somebody who's got a little life, a little season in your your faith, don't tune this out because the fundamentals matter. Now, I do not want to carry a football with me the entire time I preach this morning, but I have no other place to sit. Can I throw this to you? We hold on to four. Thank you. Appreciate that. He caught it. For those watching online, well done. Um, hey, just to be clear, that wasn't a giveaway, okay? I need that back. I just don't want to set expectations, all right? You didn't win a prize. Okay, good. I'm just, someone said, oh, we'll get you a free coffee afterwards, okay? I don't even know if I have the authority to do that, um, but I just did. The fundamental we're going to talk about this week as we jump in is this, that fans watch, followers serve. That's the fundamental truth we're going to unpack today is that fans watch while followers serve. That's what they do. We're all called, and this is my first point today, we are all called to follow. Let's just start with that word, follow. In Matthew 4, 18 through 20, it says this, as Jesus was walking beside the Sea of Galilee, which if you haven't been to the Sea of Galilee, um, you have lakes in Wisconsin that are the same size. Um, I've, I've been there on a couple of occasions, and it's a beautiful lake. But it's oftentimes even known as Lake uh, Gesenaret. Um, anyhow, he's walking alongside. He's, he saw two brothers. Simon called Peter and his brother Andrew, and they were casting a net into the lake, for they were fishermen. Come, follow me, Jesus said, and I will send you out to fish for people. And at once they left their nets, and they followed him. Now, I've always found this story curious um, because these guys have a job, an occupation, They are fishermen. Jesus walks along the lake and sees them, and he says, follow me, come follow me, just three words, and uh, with with a little direction afterwards, and I'll make you fishers of men, or I'll teach you how to fish for men. And they drop their nets, they walk out of their boat, and they just start following Jesus. 
And when I read that, you know, the first time, and I would think about it, I'm like, why? I mean, like, we have on our side the, the point of history. We know that the Son of God just called them to do something. But they don't know that. And they have an occupation. So why are they walking away from it to go follow Jesus? Jesus hasn't performed a lot of miracles at this point. Um, he, he's, he's gaining a reputation as a, as a teacher but they just follow everything. And so as I begin to study and research this more, um, and uh, that in combination with an opportunity I've had uh, to travel to Israel on a few occasions, I've had a chance to learn more about the Jewish education system in Jesus' day. And it unpacks why the word follow me meant so much. You see, when you were about four or five years old, you were considered old enough for scripture. And so you would attend a school that was called Bet Sefer. And Best Affair was really for like your four and five-year-olds up to about age 11. And it was taught by a rabbi. See, almost every village, the villages especially that were large enough to have synagogues or what we'd call churches, would also have a school. And they would employ, pay a rabbi, a teacher of the law, to be the village educator. He didn't have a, a lot of authority like in the synagogue or the running of the church, but he educated everybody. And so some villages had more than one rabbi. Well, the rabbi would teach these children, uh, ages four and five, and uh, most scholars agree that it was boys and girls would go to school. And so from four to about age 11, they'd be in Beth Sefer, and they would learn what was known as just simply the Torah, the first five books of the Bible. And they would commit during that time period, that six years, they would commit a lot of it to memory. Memorization was a big deal back then because you couldn't have your own Bible in your house. Um, everything was still on scrolls, and it was very, they were expensive, and so the, the, the community had scrolls that they would keep um, uh, in, in, in a, a specific closet inside the, the synagogue. So they would memorize these things, say them out loud, they would learn it. Now, at age 11, you were going to go learn your trade, and so the young women were going to go learn the skills of being a woman in that day and age, and the young men were going to go learn the skills of being a man in that day and age, and so they would learn their trade. So somewhere around 11, probably, Peter began to learn how to fish. Now, if you were elite, like you'd really shown yourself to be a good student and had an aptitude for this, then you would go from Bet Sefer to Bet Midrash. And Bet Midrash was the opportunity to continue to learn. There would even be adults in this class with you, but the rabbi would continue to teach, and so you'd go beyond the first five books, and you'd start committing to memory things like the Psalms and the Prophets, but then you'd learn the oral tradition of of, uh, the Torah, the first five books. The oral tradition is those teachings that have been passed down from rabbi to rabbi to rabbi to rabbi as a way to interpret scripture. Like, how do we interpret this? How do we apply it? And so you had to have the aptitude to be able to wrestle with the ideas and the, and the conflicts and the, um, the concepts that were given to you in the Torah. Now, if you were exceptional at this, and I mean truly exceptional, if you're the kid in school that like could get into Ivy League, then you could pursue a rabbi. What that means is you would pursue becoming a Tal Talmudim. And you can call it just Talmud, but Talmudim is the full name. And a Talmudim is the disciple or follower of a rabbi. And the way that would work is if you were exceptional, you would pursue a famous rabbi. So you wouldn't necessarily pursue the rabbi that was in your village. So there's kind of two kinds of rabbi. There was the rabbi that stuck around and did education, and then there were more famous rabbis that would travel from synagogue to synagogue to synagogue teaching. And Jesus became one of those. That was the type of rabbi he was. So if you were the best of the best, you would go to the rabbi, and you'd say, may I follow you? And the rabbi would look at you, and he would ask you questions, and he would interview you, because he was trying to determine very intently, can you do what I do? That's the question he's trying to answer. 
is this young person who's come to me, can they do what I do? Because if that's what they, if they can do it, then I'm going to ask them to be my Talbadim. And that relationship was very close. It was bonded. It wasn't like being a college student today. It was like being just mentored. Um, if you committed yourself to uh, following a rabbi, you wanted to learn why he did everything the, what, the way that he did it. You wanted to learn his thought process and patterns. You wanted to learn to, to walk like him. There's even a phrase known as being covered in the dust of your rabbi, meaning that you would follow so closely on, on his heels that the dust would kick up on you. And so there was a deeply committed relationship. You would be with the rabbi all the time. So rabbi said no to most people, right? Because that's a pretty deep commitment. But if that rabbi looked at you and said, follow me, then embedded in that phrase was the truth that he believed you could become what he is. You could learn to do everything that he learns how to do. So Jesus is walking alongside a seashore, a sea of Galilee, and he sees two fishermen. Are these guys the best of the best? Probably not. Doesn't mean they weren't smart. Right? They were, education was a big deal in first century Judaism. I think it, the entire community really knew the Bible very, very well. Really better than we know it. They knew the Old Testament very, very well, the Hebrew Scriptures. But he looks at these two fishermen, and does he ask them any questions? Does he interview them? Does he take some time to figure out if they can do what he can do? No, what does he do? He flips the script. And he looks at them and he says, follow me. And I'll make you fishers of men. Or I'll teach you how to fish for men. He says, follow me. And so what he's saying in that moment, these rabbis were highly esteemed and he, he, was, he was at least known as a rabbi at that point. These young men, um, probably around uh, age 29 or 30 themselves, <clears throat> had a rabbi saying, I believe that you can do what I can do. So come follow me. That's why they dropped their nets. See, we're all called to follow. That's the first call, is to be people who would follow Jesus and continue on in following him. So the second point I want to make today after following is this, is being called to follow equals being called to serve. If we look back at the passage, it says this in verse 19, when Jesus says, come follow me, now Jesus said, and I will send you out to fish for people. If you grew up kind of hearing any of the King James, it was always, you'll be fishers of men, but I will send you out to fish for people. So the call to follow and him, him saying, I believe that you can do what I can do, and I believe that this is what you're going to do. You're going to go out and you're going to fish for men. You're going to be somebody who brings men in toward me, and by men, it's implied men and women. And so what does Jesus do then? All right, well, he's intending to equip them. He models it for them. He says, I'm going to show you how it's done. All right, he doesn't just talk about it. He puts it into action. So let's, let's just see a couple examples here. Luke chapter 4, verses 40 to 42. Look at the first two words in this text. At sunset. You've got to pay attention to that. At sunset, the people brought to Jesus all who had various kinds of sickness. And laying his hands on each one, he healed them. Moreover, demons came out of many people shouting, You're the Son of God. But he rebuked them and would not allow them to speak because they knew he was the Messiah. Verse 42, the first two words. At daybreak, Jesus went out to a solitary place. And scholars kind of just all agree on this passage. The reason that those two time frames, sunset and daybreak, are put in there is because Jesus, when he started to minister to people, didn't stop until the sun came up. And so all night long, he was ministering to and he was serving those who were sick, those who were demon-possessed, and he was offering them healing. So what the disciples, the Talmudim, what they're seeing of Jesus is that 
you give yourself to people. You serve. And you serve your heart out. And then they see Jesus go to a solitary place to be alone with the Lord. Well, right near the very end of Jesus' life, before he would give his life on the cross and be resurrected, um, Jesus is having a meal with his disciples. And this scene plays out in John chapter 13. It says, Jesus knew that the Father had put all things under his power and that he had come from God and was returning to God. So he, he's fully aware. He knows who he is and why he's there and what God's about to do in his life. And so what he does next is an act of humble service. So he got up from the meal. He took off his outer clothing. He wrapped a towel around his waist. And after that, he poured water into a basin and he began to wash his disciples' feet, drying them with the towel that was wrapped around him. Now, the washing of feet was a servant's job. And your feet would be very dusty, they mostly wore sandals, and they didn't want to get the interior of the house dirty. So to, to go in to a home, you either washed your own feet or a servant in that house would wash your feet. But it was not the job of a rabbi. But Jesus says, I'm going to take on the job of a servant. And it's in verse 12, when he had finished washing their feet, he put on his clothes and returned to his place. He says, do you understand what I've done for you? He asked them. You call me teacher and Lord, and rightly so, for that is what I am. But now that I, your Lord and teacher, have washed your feet... This is probably hard for them to hear. You also should wash one another's. You should take on the humiliating posture of being a foot washer for the men that are around you, for the disciples that walk arm in arm with you. He says, I have set for you an example that you should do as I have done for you. See, Jesus isn't asking Peter to do anything that he wasn't willing to do. He isn't asking his disciples to do anything that he wasn't willing to model. Is it, which is a beautiful picture, right? I mean, just truly beautiful picture. But it gets back to this, this core concept I started with. Fans watch this stuff happen. Followers serve. Followers get their hands dirty. Followers get in the mix. And that's what Jesus is, is displaying for them. He's not waiting for somebody else to wash feet. He's making this point as a teacher, as a rabbi. He's saying to them, I told you you could do what I do. Now go do what I do. And so in Peter hearing this, as his Talmudim, as his follower, he's not just paying attention to little things Jesus does. He's asking, what do I have to do to be exactly like my rabbi? Because he believes I can be like him. And now part of the answer has been filled in. Serve, serve other people. Wash their feet in humility. It's a powerful thing. So let's answer the question here. What does exactly serving look like? And I won't take a long time with this, but Ephesians 2.10, I believe, gives a, a great reference for this. And Jesus gave many, many examples, but I like the way Paul puts this. For we are God's handiwork, created in Christ Jesus, to do good works which God prepared in advance for us to do. So if you wanted to ask the question, what does serving look like? It looks like good works. God's apparently, according to Paul and Jesus, he has already laid out good works for you to do. And because you're created in him, and he says that you're his craftsmanship and he made you, there's something for you to do. You need to go do it. You need to start serving. And, and what is, what is that, how does that take on like real flesh and meat and bones? Well, I think it starts in your home first. I'm called to serve my wife. I'm called to serve my children. I'm called to be a man that would wash their feet. Right? I mean, it means to serve in your neighborhood, to be a good neighbor. You know, to be somebody who's, who gets to know the people that live around them and, and, and can help them out, can do them favors, can ask for help. And doing good, it can look like an expression of service within the community of Appleton at large. 
Where are the needs there? I certainly believe it can happen within the church walls. There are people here um, who have needs, and you can serve those needs. You can meet them. The point is, is that serving can take on many different looks, many different functions. Perhaps you've had the opportunity to serve overseas, to, to go on trips where you got a chance to bless other people. I've done that. It's, it's an incredible thing. It, it's, it can be a very humbling thing. But God calls all of us to serve, and, and it's really just essentially what good work has he called you to? And it kind of brings me to my final question this morning is this, what do you have to offer? So I think that's kind of the struggle sometimes. Like I can tell you this morning that Jesus looks at you and says, follow me. That he believes that you can do what he can do. Some of the question we have to answer is, do we believe that? Because I think the enemy works on our minds and our insecurities play and we're like, what can God do with me? I mean, does he know me? You might be questioning what your talents are, what your gifts are. What can God do, do with you? Well, let's answer the question, what do you have to offer? The first thing that we all have to offer is our availability. And I, I, I start with this because I do think that serving takes time. I, I think you have to make yourself available to actually serve, to be available. And my concern is that when it comes to um, our culture today specifically, we don't make time for it anymore. Uh, we, we, we get busier and busier and busier and busier, and we max out our schedules or we max out our personal priorities, our personal agendas. We max them out to such an extent that there's no room left in our life to even pay attention to what God's calling us to for good works. And I, I, this is something I struggle with. Uh, it's, it's been a, a, I've been a work in process for quite some time, just between me and the Lord. I've been a work in process for, for quite some time because I like to be efficient. I like to think about the time that I have and how to use my time wisely. I have a lot on my plate. And so... Um, I, I'm, I'm, I'm the guy at the grocery store who, when he walks down the aisles and he's looking at which line to get in, I'm doing a kind of calculus in my head based on the age of the teller, all right, uh, their familiarity with technology, how friendly they seem, because if they talk to everybody, that's going to be a long line. Ain't nobody got time for that. The problem is, is in thinking that way, what God's really showed me is I have got to slow down. My time is not that valuable. And when I treat it like it is, then I miss out in times, I miss out in moments where God just says, go help them. Stop and go serve them. Or he'll bring someone to mind that I'm supposed to call and encourage, but I don't have time for that because I've got this agenda I laid out for the day. And so for me, I start the day with journaling where I ask the Lord, Lord, is there something you put in front of me today? Lord, would you help me to be attentive throughout my day um, to your voice so that I don't miss the chance to serve? Because serving looks like a lot of different things. It can look, look, look like the hands-on stuff, but sometimes serving is being an ear. It's, it's listening to somebody. Sometimes serving is being a shoulder to cry on. Sometimes it's an encouraging word. So God calls us to this. We have our availability to offer. The question is, are you available at all? Or is your life so busy, is your agenda such a priority that your availability is not really there? You've, you've left no room for it. Let me tell you this. I'll, I'm going to keep saying it. Fans watch. Followers serve. And if your availability is such that you can't serve, you're a fan. Find a way to serve. Find a way to get involved. The second thing we bring is our giftedness. We each possess talents and we possess spiritual gifts. My friend John Parrott, when he was here, he's, he also serves with me at Discovery Church. He, uh, he shared about this just briefly. Um, and I, I'm not going to talk about it a long time, but uh, the scripture says that God's put within each one of us spiritual gifts. 
according to our measure of faith. And, and so those spiritual gifts, there's, I mean, there's a number of them listed in Scripture, but it can be things like serving, hospitality. It can be um, leadership and administration. It can be prophecy or discernment. Um, there's a long list. It can be pastoring or teaching. It can be evangelism. And if you don't know what your gifts are, I highly recommend, um, especially if you're in a beyond-the-row group, I recommend that you and your group go take a test. There's a free one. Uh, I've sent a lot of people to just simply called spiritualgiftstest.com. And it helps you start the conversation of discerning what your giftedness is. Now, in addition to those gifts, we've been given talents. These are the skills that we find ourselves just good at, naturally gravitating toward, meaning that we start to do it and we seem to have an aptitude for it. When I was, uh, when I was uh, young, I, I found myself just kind of naturally signing up for opportunities to be on stage. And so the, the opportunities afforded to me uh, as, as, as a kid were either in church or in school, and mostly it was things like plays and theater. And even though today I wouldn't say that I necessarily love to act, um, I had a sense that I was supposed to be on a stage before I knew I was supposed to be on a stage. And I, I remember um, thinking that that was normal, thinking that that was typical, to enjoy being up and speaking. And I, I still remember hearing Jerry Seinfeld tell the joke that the number one fear of all Americans is public speaking, and the number of fear of all Americans is death, which means that at a funeral, you would <laughs> rather be in the casket than giving the eulogy. <laughs> but I didn't know. I thought it was, it was it, it's just, it, it came naturally to me. I enjoyed it, and I, it didn't make me all that nervous. And uh, it wasn't until somebody pointed it out. They said, hey, Ben, I, you know, like, you have some giftedness around that. I'm like, what does that mean? It means that you're doing something that you're good at. You should keep working on it. I began to take that seriously, then I realized it was also, you know, a passion of mine, which I'll talk about in just a minute, but I begin to work on that and hone the craft. You know, there's a story about Pablo Picasso, um, where he was sitting in a cafe, and um, when he, uh, when he's, while he's sitting there, he takes a napkin out and he begins to draw, and if you don't know, Picasso's a famous artist. He starts to draw on a napkin, and there's a woman sitting at a table next to him and recognizes that's Picasso. And she watches him draw stuff, and she starts thinking, I really want that napkin. And so he stands up from the table, and he picks the napkin up, and he puts it in his pocket, and he goes to leave. And she says, excuse me, sir, I so admire your work. You're so good at what you do. Um, could I please have that napkin? And then he looks at her, and he says, sure, that'll be $60,000. There's some huge number like that. And she's a little indignant, like, I watched you do that. That took you like five minutes. Why would you charge me $60,000? And he says, ma'am, that didn't take me five or six minutes. That took me 68 years. Why? Because he had been a man who'd been honing his craft and everything that, it, it, that in his life had brought him to that point. So I can tell you this week, it didn't take me 10 hours to write this message. It took me 44 years. <laughs> But I've dedicated myself to those talents. And what I've learned is, is that you dedicate yourself to your giftedness. You dedicate yourself to the talents God's given you. And he starts unlocking new ones. And he starts helping you to master your craft. And then he starts helping you to be, be able to live into things you never imagined before. But I, can I tell you where I started my career as a preacher? As a custodian. First job I could get in ministry. I, my job on Sunday mornings was to clean up uh, messes in the nursery. <laughs> It was a set up tables and chairs, and I did it for two years, um, for a long time, before ever getting a chance to get up in front of anybody. Because I, I believed in the concept in an early age, someone told me, Ben, serve first. And if you're faithful with little, God will give you more. 
It'll give you more opportunities. And so I continue to do that today is just try to serve and, and try to use my giftedness. And this, it, it, this develops, I think, into the third thing that we have to offer, and that's our passion. Passion, I think, comes a little bit later. Some, some people get their passions really early on in life. Most don't. It's through serving that you start to unlock the thing that you think you were born to do, meaning that when you do it, you feel close to God. It's not unlike um, the Robert Liddell quote, uh, or little quote, uh, he was an Olympian um, and he was a runner. And when he said to his sister, I said, why do you keep running? He said, I feel the Lord's pleasure when I run. I think that there are things in our life that we start to do where we feel God's pleasure. We feel like we were put on earth to do it and it becomes our passion. And, it, and, and God reveals those passions to us, I believe, over time. Some people get it early on, but if you commit yourself to serving, you commit yourself to the gifts and the, and the talents God's put inside of you, your passion starts to emerge, and then you know what you're living for. And you, you have a passion that not only is for the Lord, but for the thing he's called you to. And then finally, this is where I want to conclude today. The final thing that you have to offer is your story. And there's a reason I end with this specifically, because I think it's perhaps the thing that trips us up the most when it comes to having something to offer God to serving, is we get tripped up by our own story. There's a woman I serve with. Her name is uh, Vicky. Vicky's wonderful. Um, she runs uh, a nonprofit called Choices Women's Clinic in Orlando, Florida. They've got two locations, and one that sits really close to um, our University of Central Florida campus where there's 50,000 students. Choices Women's Clinic um, tries to bring women in who were headed to an abortion clinic to tell them about the alternatives that they have and then to show them all the support that would be available to them if they chose to keep their child. And so Vicki connected us as a Discovery Church. She attends our church, her and her husband, Bill, and she connected with our, our women's ministry, and we said, tell us about these women. And uh, twice this year already, we've had the opportunity to meet two of the women and put on baby showers for them. And so we call them and we tell them, like, hey, we, uh, we got your name from Choices. We, we've heard about your situation. Can we just do a, like a, a, an event for you, a baby shower? And we'll have, we'll have people there. You can invite who you want or just come alone, whatever you want to do. And so they show up and they get showered with gifts. And uh, the, the, the women that are there love on them. And, and it, it's a beautiful thing. Well, uh, the, the two women specifically this year that we've done this for, um, as soon as they had their babies, they came back to our women's Bible study because they wanted all those women to meet their child. And, uh, and then at the same time, but one of them said, can I start attending the Bible study? And we said, sure. And then we started seeing both of them on Sundays attending. That's been a beautiful thing. And I, I, I couldn't tell you right now that they've both made a commitment to Jesus Christ, but they've seen something in us because we've been serving them. Now, why do I tell this story? Well, let's go back to Vicki. You see, when Vicki was in college, she had an abortion. And it was a very traumatic event. She nearly lost her life because of how, how badly things went medically. And then when she gave her life to Jesus and he began to heal her heart over the trauma and the woundedness that was there, um, she took her gifts and talents as a businesswoman and she said, God, if you want, I'll help every young woman that was just like me, everyone that I can. And it's become her life's passion. See, I believe God takes our pain and our trauma and our failure and he can turn it into our ministry and our purpose. And he can do the same for you today. He can turn it into your purpose. Now, we, we see this play out in the life of Peter and this is where I'll close this morning. You see, Peter had a story. 
And can anyone else on the planet say that they had walked with Jesus for three years, witnessed the miracles that he did, been invested in like Jesus invested him? Peter even went to the point of pledging himself to die for Jesus. But then on the night that he was betrayed by Judas, Peter stood outside the courtyard or the home where Jesus is on trial with the Jewish leaders. And three times people came up to him and said, aren't you the disciple of Jesus? Aren't you a Talmudim? And he denied the Savior. There's really only about 10 accounts in the Gospels that show up in every single one of the four books of the Bible, the four biographies of Jesus. And this is one of them. It's Peter's denial of Jesus. And you could think, well, that's man. That, how do you recover from that? How do, you, how do you get back from that? And yet when Jesus sees him and spends time with him on the seashore, he gives him a purpose. You can go to the end of Book of John and you can read about him talking about the relationship he has with him when he says, do you love me? And then he gives him three commands. He says, feed my sheep, tend my sheep, and feed my lambs. He gives him direction. And Peter is restored in that moment. What do we see happen? Well, in Acts chapter 2, verse 14, and I'm going to skip the message he gives, but verse 14, it says, then Peter stood up. Not James and John, not Andrew, not Philip, not Bartholomew. Peter stood up with the 11 and he raised his voice and he addressed the crowd. And here on the day of Pentecost, when the Holy Spirit's moved and God is giving life to his new church, Peter's the one that gets up and speaks and he, he preaches the, the good news of Jesus and he tells them, believe in Jesus for the forgiveness of your sins. And it says this in verse 41, those who accepted his message were baptized and about 3,000 were added to their number that day. 3,000. This is remarkable. And just hang with me for another second here. This is so important. I want you to hear this. He had a story, but he made himself available. And the same, the same rabbi who looked at him on the seashore as a fisherman and said, follow me, was still looking at him and saying the same thing after he betrayed him. He said, I, I can use that. I can work with your failure. I can work with your pain. I can work with your trauma. Just make yourself available. And that's what happens in the life of Peter. Now I wanna invite us here for just a moment to close our eyes. I'm gonna to bring some things to a close here, taking a little bit more time than I should, but I'm kind of fired up this morning because service is so important. If you would just close your eyes with me, I just want you to, to, to think about this question. Are you a fan or a follower? You see fans watch but followers are serving. I don't say that to condemn you. I don't say that to judge you. But if there's a sense of conviction in your heart right now, that's the Holy Spirit. The question is, is are there some nets in your life you need to drop, that you need to walk away from so that you can give yourself to it? Are there some lies that you believed about yourself that you need to walk away from and believe the truth that Jesus looks at you and says you can do what he does? If you've never made the decision this morning to follow Jesus, that's available to you. You can come to know Jesus Christ in a very personal way. And if, if you'd like to here after the service, you can come talk to me and I'll pray with you about that. For the rest, I wanna, I wanna pray. God, thank you for this morning, for the, the chance, the opportunity we've had to hear your word and your truth. I pray that it wouldn't leave us alone, that your truth would follow us around all week and we would have new eyes to see where we can make ourselves available new eyes to see our giftedness and our talents, our, our spiritual gifts, new eyes for the passion that you wanna put in our heart, Lord, new eyes to see how our story will connect to the stories of other people we can bring love and hope and faith to. 
Thank you, Lord, for this. In the name of Jesus, I pray. Amen and amen.